Welcome back to Toys on Tap. This week is a banger of an episode with Brian Flynn of Super 7. We walk through his life from early childhood with toys till he moved across the country and started working with toys. And yes, we talk about how he is the reason for Safubi being in the United States the way that it is. If you want more Toys on Tap, you can like, follow, rate, review, subscribe, wherever you get podcasts. You can follow us on all socials at Toys on Tap. And if you want even more, you can jump on something called the Nitty Gritty, patreon.com slash Toys on Tap. $3 will get you a little extra time with each of the artists that we interview. We absolutely love doing this, and it's something that we can offer back to the fans. Now let's get to this episode of Toys on Tap. Awesome to have you on today. Yeah, well, uh, I, I hope it, it turns out the way you hoped. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Toys on Tap. Um, it's a toy podcast that kind of goes around and interviews the artists behind the toys that we all love. Um, it's expanded over the couple years where it's like toys that you might have grown up with. Some of the Star Wars figure sculptors, and uh, which has been really cool. Um, but yeah, you were next in line to get the on the podcast because you're a creator of crazy proportions. I, I I like to come up with the ideas of making stuff and give my 10 cents about it. But obviously, there's a whole crew of people working here. It's it's no longer just me and Josh in a back room. For those that don't know you, which is so crazy if they don't know you by now, please. Let, 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 let's rephrase that. Most people do not know me. Which is so crazy. Maybe it's just those that love toys definitely know who you are. Please introduce yourself and tell us what you do. All right. My name is Brian Flynn. I am the founder and owner of Super 7. And uh, I try to make as much stuff as people will let me. That, I love that. I love that. Working with Dove and like the resin scene, we're all doing the same thing. We just don't have the licenses to do it, which is scary. Well, I mean, if you really think about it way back then, none of us did. Yeah. I mean, we got started with one license and slowly worked our way out. Um, the reality for making toys, like I said, you know, we're going back now. The magazine came out in 2001. So we were working on it in 2000. Yeah. Came out in 2001. And from the very first magazine, we were doing recolors of vinyls from Japan. Which, you know, if you're talking about being a resin guy, you're taking an existing or kit bashing an existing and then doing your spin on color and packaging and everything. That's really the same mentality that we did 23 years ago, but we were being able to go to a, uh, you know, a small run Japanese manufacturer at that point and say, I want that Hetera or that Godzilla, but in this color. And that's the beginning of what we did and i mean we did that for 12 years yeah you know um the first like major major license that we ever got ironically enough was star wars and that came Unreal. well it was a it was a weird circuitous route so mm -hmm. we've been making vinyl in japan for over a decade and 
when we opened up the second iteration of the store, which would have been 2006-ish, 2007, um, uh, we wanted to make it the ultimate place to come hang out, mm. talk about, buy toys, and like the ultimate store. What's the store we always wanted? Here's the art books, here's the artwork, here's the toys, station, whatever. Like, oh, I like this weird pencil. We should carry these pencils. And um, one of the things we did was, you know, we were talking about decorating and how you do it. Like, are you going to paint the wall a wacky color? You do whatever. Yeah. And the joke always is, as you well know, that we all live in our parents' basement and do this, right? Yeah. Or our grandma's house or whatever. So we're like, at grandma's house, you always have Victorian wallpaper, you know? And some of it's that flat sort of, in my mind, always this sort of burgundy victorian flocked wallpaper yeah uh, and i was like we should make that for our store so we made you know grandma's basement kind of thing <laughs> and so we made this this flocked wallpaper that and people can google it up or whatever that was um a pattern uh and a memorial to all the dead characters in star wars mm. So from if you step back, it looks like the Victorian wallpaper sort of. But when you get up close, you're like, it's Darth Vader and Boba Fett and Stormtroopers and different. And it's all these dead characters in Star Wars. And so we just made it for the store as just sort of this ridiculous thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what happened was a friend of mine, Shane Turgeon, who lives up in Canada, who's been collecting forever. So I'm I'm tangent man in case yeah, you don't know. I, no, I'm going to take a tangent off of this. We're going to come back to Shane. How I met Shane yeah. was in the early days of the internet. So we're talking like 1996, mm -hmm. 1997. Um, he apparently wandered into uh, a toy store in Portland called Dr. Tong's House of 3D Collectible Toys when they were on Burnside. And he was a high-powered Star Wars collector. He goes, you got anything rare? And Mark Peterson pulled out a double telescoping Darth Vader. Of course he did. And he, and he was just like, how is that possible? How much is it? And he goes, it's already sold. Can't sell it to you. So he took a picture of it. Mm. He put that picture online. Now, what the real story behind that part was, is Mark had sold it to me. I just hadn't picked it up yet. So when... He posted that picture, you know, in the trolls of the internet, you get around, not trolls, but trolls is where I was meaning to say, you're going around the deep, darky, you know, murky depths of the internet. I found the picture and it was like, it was his first website. I think it might've been tattoos and toys or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and I sent him a message. I was like, Hey man, that's my figure. And he was like, what? That's so crazy. And we met each other then. So we met yeah. each other's toy collectors and like, 96 97 and so fast forward now we're talking a decade later he comes to the store he's like oh man this wallpaper is so rad you should get you should make this for real you should talk to my friend steve and i'm like all right first off lucasfilm's not going to give me a wallpaper license and two who's your friend steve but it's shane so his friend is steve sansweet who works at yeah at lucasfilm so we go to Lucasfilm to meet Steve. We show him the wallpaper. And of course, Steve is wonderful. He always has been. He is. He taught us all how to collect Star Wars. He was like, this is amazing. Hold on. I'm going to show this to Paul. And he walks down the hall to Paul Southern, 
who's the head of all licensing. He's like, Paul, you should get these guys to license this. And so we meet with Paul and he's like, well, what do you guys do? And we go, oh, well, here's all these vinyl toys we make. Paul had just returned from Japan where he headed up international licensing for like, I don't know how many years, but a long time. He's the person that got Metacom making Star Wars. He's the, mm -hmm. So he knew our toys, but because they were in Japan, he was like, oh, I didn't know anybody did this in the States. And we're like, yeah. He goes, well, what could you make? We're, you know, we start rattling off stuff. He like, you can't do anything of that. You got to work around Hasbro. We're like, Shogun Warrior. I've always wanted a Shogun Warrior Stormtrooper. And he was like, how big? How much? He's like, that should work. And you can make your life wallpaper. Holy moly. But the only, but once again, that that is the crack in the door that then sends everything off. But that's because of, you know, same thing. That's 10 plus years of working within the same group of people that you and I are in that eventually manifests itself. So going back to the figure thing is we then, you know, we make the Stormtrooper. We bet the entire company, every penny we'd saved for a decade into making the Stormtrooper. Uh, and luckily people bought it. It was great. And then we were like, all right, we're ready to make the next one, which was going to be Boba Fett. And it was like, all right, either we take all of our money and wait three years, or is there anything else we can do faster? And I was like, the only thing that would be interesting to me is I always wanted those alien prototypes from the cover of um, Action Figure News and Toy Yeah. Review. I think. And I was like, those things would blow my mind. So we went and we tracked down, it took us a while. We tracked down Frank Supio really helped out with that. Uh, tracked down who was heading up licensing at Fox. Uh, and no one was doing license aliens. There mm -hmm. was nothing. No one cared about aliens. Aliens was throwaway. And we asked about it. And because we had done the thing with Lucasfilm, obviously, we had some credibility. Like, okay, these guys can follow through. But it was still, I think, the original deal that we signed with them was twenty-five grand, minimum guarantee. Like, Holy moly! That's just your royalties, and you're because we don't know you. You pay the entire amount up front. You know, and we did back of the back of the envelope math. Like, how do we make this work? How do we get there? How, but it's like I'm if they're going to let me make those alien action figures, I'm going to figure it out. Yeah. Um, and so we did long story short, we did as most everybody knows, but like when we showed up at San Diego that year with the first reaction figures, you know, is that 11 years ago? Was it 2012? That's so crazy. It's already been that long. Yeah. It's, it's either 2012 or 2013. I think it's 2012. Yeah. It might be 2013. Google will tell us, and then you can chime in with a little blurb <laughs> or whatever and be like, no, he's completely, you know, crackpot. It was this year. Um, but, you know, we showed up to San Diego with those prototypes and we're like, mm -hmm. we've got, and this was right when the multi-articulated stormtrooper had come out from Kenner. Yeah. Kenner. Cause it wasn't the Hasbro was still doing Hasbro Kenner stuff. Um, and we were like, that was $7.99 for a multi-articulated Stormtrooper. We were showing up at San Diego Comic-Con for $20 for a license that no one 
thinks about. Mm -hmm. Low articulation, low sculpt detail, low pain apps. We're like, you know, this is going to appeal to this many people. And what we didn't realize at the time was much like me, everybody grew up like me, they were craving that nostalgia just as much as they were craving multi-articulated stormtrooper mm. looks like walked right off the set. Like, I want that, but I also want this. Take yeah. me back to being eight years old again. Um, and that was sort of the beginning of it. So it was a very circuitous route that went over and around and jumped over the quick brown fox, over the log and everything. But just that the thinking and what you guys do in the resonance scene is not really indifferent to what we've done every single time. It's just that it's been this slow build over 22 years to get to the point now where you're like, oh, you have all this. But it's like everybody starts one piece at a time. Maybe yeah. this won't work. Maybe it won't. Maybe the next one works. Maybe it won't. I just make these because I like, oh, that one did okay. And you just slowly build it up. Yeah, I think my love for Super 7 is because you have the your hand in both pots and you're like connecting them between like pulling at my nostalgic heartstrings and then also like, oh, but look at these the way that we've done it, but in the style that you once remembered. And I, I absolutely love that. Um, going along with your like life and um, in the Sufubi and stuff as well, before we jump all the way back to childhood, yeah. I've been told... Please tell me if this is true or not, that you are one of the main reasons that Sufubi is in the U.S. Um, you never write your own press releases, but uh, it would be hard for me to anically understate the influence that we had on that. Okay. Well, we'll put it this way. There's always been Japanese toy collectors for vintage Godzilla toys all mm -hmm. over. If you go back to AFN and Lee's and all that, there was a guy named Bruce Spears that was writing stuff up. There were lots of regional toy dealers at that time uh, on the West coast of uh, America and in Hawaii, they imported a lot of Japanese vinyl they brought over and they would show ultra seven and Kamen Rider V3 and Kikaida on TV, especially in Hawaii. And so those kids grew up buying soft vinyl in the seventies. For me as a collector, then, and then we'll jump over to what you're asking me, is in 91 when I started collecting toys again, uh, Shogun Godzilla found that at a flea market or whatever, but that was when Bondi started remaking uh, vinyl, modern vinyls. Yeah. So there was a comic book store, believe it or not, in San Antonio, Texas, that carried the 91 Bondi vinyls. And I was like, wow what are these? These are great. I, you know, you'd never held vinyl toys as a person growing up in America. Yeah. And so I bought those and I thought they were amazing and the materials cool because they're big, mm -hmm. but they're still articulated and you can play with them and you don't really worry about hurting them. And that sort of then led me to like, well, what other vinyls are there? And you start learning about Bullmark and blah, blah, blah. So that, that dives me into like, you know, Figure, you know, in 1991, you know, putting together a collection of the first, you know, 112, 116. Yeah. I can't believe I'm even messing that number up now. But the original Star Wars figures doesn't take that long mm -hmm. because it's like no one cares. They're a dollar a piece. Oh, I just bought 
a whole collection for a kid from 40 bucks, you know, and now I've got 70 of them just right there. And then I'm going to go over here and buy these two and buy that, you know, and you figure it out. So you're looking for that thing to collect. And I start getting into Japanese vinyl and you start to pick up little obscure vintage pieces here and there. And you're like, what are these things? Yeah, They don't look like, I have no frame of reference for these weird monsters. None. So Canagon, it's a giant coin purse that turns into a monster. You know, Robot Detective KGK, it's a robot with a hat and a trench coat that solves mysteries, you know? Nazaman is a moth that shoots lightning. Like, these things make no sense. And that's what made them wonderful. Like, if I I was attracted to the design sensibilities of it, because you have, if you're talking about an American point of view or a Western point of view, even through Star Wars, all your aliens in the cantina still, for the most part, have two arms and two legs. Mm -hmm. And they're walking around. They got get a little ridiculous, but they're not that ridiculous. They're very much down, you know, aside from Darth Vader Stormtrooper thing, bad guys wear black, good guys wear white. Maybe he's got a tentacle arm. Maybe he's got a weird space helmet on, but it doesn't get too varied. And when mm. you get into the Japanese stuff, you're like, it's a ball of pollution. that's going to fight a radioactive lizard. Yeah. And we're going to green light that right now, you know? So how does it kill the ball of pollution? It's going to rip its eyes out. Great. I'll sign up. Like that <laughs> level of pandemonium yeah. design of the characters, then cutened up and turned into bright colors, theoretically for a kid, is what got me so excited about soft vinyl. So I became a big collector of it. And when I moved to San Francisco in 2000, I worked on a book with Chronicle with Jimbo Madison was putting together a book called So Crazy Japanese Toys. Uh, and it is a survey of just whacked out Japanese toys. Yeah. That's it. And that book was about a third stuff taken from the shop Kimono My House, which was mm-hmm. an integral early shop in the East Bay. We interrupted this broadcast of Toys on Tap to bring you this. Meanwhile, in a galaxy of bootleg treasures. DOV2, we have engine failure. We must crash land on DKE Toy Planet. Oh my, we're doomed. Wait, salvation! Hooray! We're saved in DLV2! Limited edition custom artist made action figures and DKE Toys! Check out www.dkatoys.com for a full catalog. Hooray for custom action figures! DKE! Third of it was my collection, and a third of it was Mark Nagata's collection. After the first book, um, Chronicle was like, we want another book! But I didn't want to do another book. I didn't have yeah. the time for that. And I wasn't particularly interested. So I suggested that instead we make a magazine. Because one of the big things for me traveling to Japan is in America, especially collecting Japanese toys, there are not very many collectors. Mm-hmm. So they're actually very helpful to one of you. Tricks, tips. And I'm sure it's the same way in the resin casting things. You find people, you, they're doing something that's pretty nice. You're like, hey, you should try a pressure pot. Yeah. You should try this. You should try that. Let me help you. Like, it's very collaborative. Mm-hmm. In Japan, it has always been, it's very isolated. Like, you don't want to tell somebody information about something because then they might find it and you might not get it. Mm. So learning about vintage Japanese toys was very difficult. And especially being a Westerner. 
Uh, so one of the things that I really wanted to do with the magazine was just talk about all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So one, it's a lot of vintage articles that tell people what is there. Hey, did you know that there was a Godzilla from Marisol that came out in 66 and then later in 71 with Bullmark? And here are all the variations and colors and what to look for and what's rare and what's not rare. Like, oh, that gives people a guide. Secondarily, then we started making toys with people in Japan. So whether you're talking about Secret Base or Gargamel or Real Head or, you know, you name it, like, we got to the point where we were the import gateway for most everybody. Cause we would go over to Japan, see things that we liked. And we're like, Oh, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. I know 50 guys will buy that. And we'd say, I'll take 50 of those. And the guy making them is like, I only make 20 at a time because nobody, nobody over here. Yeah. Cares. It would be the equivalent if somebody from Japan came over to a bunch of people casting resin and said, Hey, there's a whole crew of people in here that are super into this that you have no, no idea about. And all of a sudden they came and they were like, Hey, every time you make a resin run, I need a hundred copies. You just be like, what? Yeah. How you? I mean, literally we had manufacturers going, I won't sell that to you because you'll never get rid of them. Mm -hmm. And I was like, don't worry. We know, we know the people that will sell them to, them. and we would promote everybody and bring everybody back and sell it until it became sort of its own scene and ironically you know it continued to evolve and it evolved eventually to a place where in in some ways we're not even that involved in it anymore because mostly it's very creator based now mm -hmm. where beforehand we could you know getting something manufactured in japan was extremely difficult 20 years later, it's not so much anymore. So now you have more opportunities for people and people have brought over some of that manufacturing into the States. But we sort of helped put that scene together for a very long time. I mean, that scene still runs on Skullbrain mostly. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we still own and pay for Skullbrain. Yeah. Month, you know, because that's, that's a scene and we come from it and we love it. Um, we do our thing, which is I make mummy boys and bat boys and different things. And that's not really what most of those, goes, those guys want anymore, but that's okay. That's fine. That's not why we ever made it. We made the ones we wanted. Long story short, without getting too into the weeds, it would be very difficult to imagine the scene existing in the States that does now if we had not spent it. 10 to 15 years doing nothing but promoting it and bringing it over yeah like we were we were the it sounds so weird to say shit like this but like you know we were the single biggest customer to every japanese vinyl company in japan uh on the especially on the designer side for the better part of a decade and we we did have a quasi you know, relation, I don't know how to describe it, but a relationship where we would go to these people where we were like, I really like what this guy's doing and go, all right, what we really want to get behind this. We think that a lot of people are into this. This is a really cool design. And they'd be like, well, we don't really have the money. 
or the bandwidth. Like I, I, you know, we would fund the projects, we would pay for them in advance so they could get them made, yeah. bring them over, and we would help work with them to build a bigger thing. It's it's no different than Dob does in the residency, quite honestly. Yeah. Which like, is would the residency be anywhere near what it is without Dov. Yeah. It's crazy to think, um, because I've had uh Lev from Toy Tokyo on. And anytime someone comes on and I can pinpoint that they are the reason that something exists, like for him, it was the Uze figures in the US. Like he's mm-hmm. the reason that they yeah, made I it. I mean, I heard the story where he, he literally took like a donkey yeah. cart up the side of the hill to the castle that the factory was in. It's the, the craziness where you're like, what the what? And now to have like you are the third in that. So his was Uze Dove is like all resin stuff. And then you are now the Safubi. And so it's like I'm making my way through the toy scene to find yeah. the gurus in each section, it feels like. Yeah, I mean, and and I don't many in many ways that's for somebody else to yeah. decide. You know, you never decide your own way. Like when Rich Montanari, who does Lash. Mm-hmm. And Mutant Vinyl Hardcore, Lash is, was his screen name. Sorry, Mutant Vinyl Hardcore was his company. Like early on, he did a really nice thing where he did a tribute to the 66 Godzilla and had me like write up the header card. And he was really cool where he was just like, oh, that, you know, you're the guy that got me down part of this road. Now, that's not to say I have anything to do with his success. Like he did all that himself. We didn't do it. Did we help create an atmosphere? that allowed him to start maybe, but all these guys still did it on their own. Yeah. So I, I don't want there to be any implication that somehow, you know, we're responsible for all of it. Yeah. Your love for toys definitely speaks. Um, and you made the statement uh, in 91 when you started collecting again. So let's walk yeah. it back to childhood. What are the, those toys you're playing with? What are those ones that are shaping you? Yeah. My my earliest memories of them come from when I was seven, eight, nine. So my dad's in the military. And mm-hmm. So you move pretty frequently. You move every roughly three, three and a half years. So every three or three and a half years, you jettison every personal object that you own to get down to as little weight as possible to move to the next. Um, so when I, in 70... Six or 77, we moved to Bitburg, Germany, to the Air Force Base in Germany. It's no longer active base. Um, and then my mom worked at the on-base thrift. Mm-hmm. So obviously, too, everybody's leaving. They get rid of their stuff. So my mom worked at the on-base thrift. So when we lived in Germany, I had an amazing collection of all sorts of random stuff like i remember having 12 inch gi joes you know with the fuzzy hair and yeah if you took them in the bathtub and you washed their hair when you were washing your hair their hair would fall out (laughs) so i had all these mangy 12 inch gi joes i had this big play set that was a like the side of a mountain with a couple zip lines Mm. and then i had a couple planet of the apes migo figures that Mm. i played with with that um but the prized possessions were star wars with star wars figures like i remember seeing star wars because i didn't see star wars in a theater i saw the star wars at 
on a Saturday, like as a matinee, and I think in the officers club, the O club of mm-hmm. the base, where they were like, my dad just grabbed me and my brother one Saturday, and we're like, we're gonna go see a movie, and we're like, well, what movie we're we gonna say? He goes, just sit down and watch it, and they plop me down in front of basically what would be today like a big screen TV kind of thing. Uh, I'm sure it was projection because uh, they probably brought over the film or something. And I'm sitting there and then Star Wars happens and the fucking Star Destroyer comes up and it keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. And finally you see those blue white engines at the end and my mind just went. So um, we didn't have a ton of Star Wars stuff, but as a kid, my favorites were I had Luke X-Wing mm-hmm. and Princess Leia and her damn little gun. I remember losing her gun and then finding it where cleaning my room once my mom made me clean my room where the seam of the carpet hits the baseboard and was wedged in there. <laughs> I was like, it's a fucking gun. It's a gun. It's yeah. a gun fucking at that time. I was like, it's a gun. Oh my God. Ran over, put it back in Princess Leia's hand. And I had a dark die cast star destroyer with that little drawer and you could pull out the tiny little white yeah. blockade runner. And, and you, you just put it in you clean the door and open the door and take out the blockade runner and you know that was kind of the extent of it uh i I had a few other figures we've got a photo from christmas day of my brother opening up a ben kenobi i don't think i had a ben kenobi i only had a few but those those were the ones Mm -hmm. and uh yeah and they were just like just just utterly trans you know that that's it but it's also maybe a bit if i think about it now using you is like maybe it's a bit of me too why in what we make it's like yeah why wouldn't you have a 12 inch gi joe and a three and three quarter star wars and an eight inch minigo figure and they're all playing on a giant base together like i don't get hung up on i only look at and collect this one thing i collect all of it it's all great yeah and i think uh i I never had that growing up. I had all the toys I could get my hands on, but it never mattered if they didn't fit together. It didn't like I have the a set of Cowboy of Moo Mesa behind me because those rocked my world when I grew up in the 90s. They were like my favorite thing. Um, I'm assuming there's. I I think that's interesting, too, though, is for me, you know, people theorize it about collecting, but I don't think that I think I'm just a collector by gene. Yeah, the same thing, because I don't have any of that stuff from when I was a kid. I never you we could never have the box of toys in the basement because we moved every three years. Yeah. So you have nothing. I don't think that's what drives me to collect. I don't think it's some weird Freudian thing like that. But it is it is interesting where, you know, same thing where you're like, oh, I had them all. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, I never not negatively. I never had the opportunity to have one because every time you moved, you get rid of it. Yeah, like I remember same thing, same same time in Germany. I remember having a Shogun Warrior Poseidon with the wheels that folded down and the way that blue that red missile fit perfectly into the blue shoulder cannon. And then the my friend had the Mazinga where it shot the fist. Like I remember all those things crystal clear mm-hmm. still to this, to this day. Oh. So I'm assuming there's some kind of lull in there because then you pick everything back up in 91 um yes i i first got introduced in 90 there was a kid that i knew there's a so my friends in 
Tampa were in a bunch of different punk bands. Uh, Slap Reality, I mean, sorry, there were in the greater area, which was Slap Reality, Awake, all this other stuff. My friends were in People's Court and a band called Asa, mm-hmm. which is one of the better grind bands of all time. Long story short, People's Court started playing some shows with a band called the Pancake Farmers. Not, not, nothing that anybody would ever know. But the guy that was this in the Pancake Farmers yeah, had all his toys. So he's our age and he's 19, but he's got all his toys out. And I was like, oh, man. Star Wars figures are pretty cool. But this is kind of dorky. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I think about this. And, but he had Tron figures. And the Tron figures, those clear figures when I was a kid, oh, those were so cool. I remember having those uh, when we moved back to San Antonio. And I was like, so that was my first kind of brush up into it. It was the it was in 90. I was like, oh, those <laughs> Tron figures. I might have to, I might have to cross back over here. Yeah. It took a it took a year, summer of 91, when I went back uh to see my parents. I was like, I think I want to get my Star Wars toys again. That that's the I don't know what uh when I started this podcast uh probably two years ago, it was a thing of like, I'm not a collector. I like the scene, I'm a maker, I'm a seller, I'm not a collector. And then I started seeing toys that I had, and that's what like started kickstarting everything mm-hmm. in me and then doing episodes of toy history and it was like all right i'm a collector now at this point like i i'm surrounded by it uh, all i talk to are people that make toys and so it's like i get that 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 feeling of seeing it and you immediately are brought back to childhood you're like i i think i need all of them every one of them and, and it's not even it's like you didn't even know it was like that like it just yeah. hits you so out of the blue where you're just like I couldn't have, if you had asked me what that was five minutes ago, I couldn't have even recalled it in my brain. Mm-hmm. But the moment you put it in my hand, it's like a sledgehammer of memories. Yeah. Come through. At this point, it's now grail pieces for me. And it's like, I in don't know. Yeah, I don't know that there is like, for me, I just found one um, that kind of, it predates a lot of the resin scene, but it's a mm-hmm. resin toy. Um, it was made, uh, it was made by Steven Hillenberg, who's the creator of SpongeBob and, uh, the voice in Mm -hmm. 89, he created a Walt Disney figure in a block of resin. So, uh, Walt on ice and he sold it at like a thousand pieces and then redid another run in 96. And I finally was able to get my hands on one, but it was like, what are we doing? Yeah, when you talk about the resin scene, there's some really interesting historical stuff that maybe maybe does get talked about, but there is a lot of that stuff where you had quasi art projects mm-hmm. because they couldn't figure out how to get manufacturing done. There's a lot of really weird Star Wars bootleggy stuff mm-hmm. from domestic high end bootlegs from. Uh, even the late 80s and early 90s that often gets overlooked i've only ever seen an article or two on them where you're like oh these were cast by this guy mm-hmm. like 89 or 91 you know stuff where you're like what you know like no one was doing that stuff but they would do these small runs 
you know, just for them and their buddies kind of thing. Um, and you start to get into that when you even talk about uh, Futura's point man, the very first point mans. Mm-hmm. Those are all in cast resin because they couldn't afford to do injection molding. Those were Moax promos. That was, was that 99? Yeah. Holy you moly. Know? You know, so those Futura figures are from 99 and they're all cast resins on blister cards. Um, and then, oh God, you're talking about, I mean, even we did some cast resin stuff really early on because where else were you supposed to to do it at? Um, you know, I think the first person to take resin, and I could be wrong, so mm-hmm. I'm sure somebody will correct me. But as far as I know, really, the first person to take resin and really kick it up a notch was Suck Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was like, no, no, I'm doing this, doing this. And I, you know, it was a shtick, almost like kind of, it's so crappy, but you'll still buy it anyways. But it was... yeah. He's, he's much smarter than that. People don't give him enough credit. Um, but he was the person, I think, the first where I saw somebody like take it and like, no, I don't think you guys really see what we could be doing here. Yeah. I understood his intelligence. Uh, he came on for a five part walk me through his whole life. <laughs> and it was like 10 to here's a, the craziest stories you've ever yeah, heard yeah it was like 10 to 12 hours of just hanging out with this guy that uh he plays this part but after 12 hours that part kind of falls away and you you just get to see this guy who his real name is morgan and he wants to talk about toys and and he wants to make to- and it's it's interesting he uh, he is much much smarter than most people think that he is, and it's not that it's all calculated. He's going with his gut. It's just that, you know, he's much more cerebral than people think he is. They think it's all just dumb dick yeah. jokes, whatever. And it's like, no. <laughs> no, they're smart dick jokes. <laughs> there, there, there's a whole master plan, you know. Yeah. In some ways, and in some ways, he's just like, I don't know. I thought it was funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I, in doing all this dive and stuff, I have to dive behind certain people. And so what I do know about you is uh, on top of like your love for toys starting to come back in 91, 90, 91, um, you then start this art style stuff where you work for Fossil in 94. And then you end up working for Nike. Yes. And then you get yourself to San Francisco. Yes. Like 2000-ish with hybrid, right? Yep. Okay. Um, Yes. Tell me about the art that goes through all of those. So obviously, so uh, I I get get known for a few things in different circles, but whatever. Uh, Growing up, my art school, if you will, was punk rock and skateboards, Mm -hmm. but specifically skateboards, like copying skateboard graphics, learning how to draw. Like I couldn't draw like people draw comic books, people in motion, every panel changes versus like, here's an illustration that you perfect and it's a static image. Um, So I learned how to draw and I learned everything looking at skateboarding. And then I would help my friends with all their record covers and demo tape covers, t-shirts, whatever it would be. You know, we had a the high school I had, we had an art class as an elective, or you could also take a uh, commercial art 
class. Mm-hmm. It's where you learn how to run a one color printer. You learned how to print photographs. You learned how to make a silk screen, some other stuff like that, which was essentially a trade class back then. Like it was a trade mm-hmm. working in the printing industry, working in like I can make film positives and put it on a press. You know, I can burn, I can cut ruby lith and burn screens and make silk screen t-shirts or spirit ribbons was what we used to fund the class. Yeah. Screen spirit ribbons to sell for the football game or whatever. And the very first computer. So I would do all that. So I, I became the paste up layout guy. And then I eventually got a job at Kinko's, which was just like, Oh, somebody's going to pay me to just, Oh, you need help with that. Let me show you how to paste this up on a sheet and make it reproduce. You know, you know, you're trying to make an invite for your, you know, cousin's bar mitzvah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, you know, maybe we should try a woven paper for that or a cotton paper rather than you know, just, you know, whatever. Um, my mom, my grandma on my dad's side was an art teacher uh, in very rural West Texas. And she was very, very knowledgeable about the entire world of art. Mm-hmm. She traveled extensively. Um, when I got to college, I was like, I guess I go to art school. I knew I wasn't going to be a painter. I knew uh, that wasn't, I, I couldn't do that stuff. I couldn't take out a brush and make a beautiful watercolor. You know, that's, I, and she was like, well, you should take some commercial art classes maybe to fall back on or mm-hmm. advertising art is what they called it, I think. And I was like, oh, whatever. So I signed up for this class and they're like, you need to make a logo. You need to make a, you know, a letterhead. You need to make a t-shirt or something. And I was like, oh, what what we call branding now to a lot of degree. Yeah. It was like, what I've been doing in skateboarding and what I've been doing, making punk rock records is a job. Well, this is easy. Mm-hmm. And so I jumped into graphic design and it was just very, very straightforward. It was mm-hmm. just like, oh, like how many logos have you drawn for punk bands on your folder, you know, or heavy metal bands yeah. with their iconic interlock type? Thursday night, 7 p.m. YouTube Live, it's Toys Alive! Toys Alive! Toys Alive! There's way cool artist unboxing. Accounts under 1,000 followers. Art out there for 30 bucks or less. Collector Spotlight. Current and upcoming shows and drops. Giveaways. Short chats with artists. News from the hood. 100% indie all the time. That's Toys Alive! Thursday nights, 7 p.m. PST, YouTube Live. I've, I've, I've done this 700 times. I've been doing this for years. Oh, you need another one? What do you need? All right, you want some custom type? Here, here's 40 different kinds of custom type that I can come <laughs> up with in five minutes. You know, so uh, I graduated in December 93. And I started working at Fossil Watches. I was employee number seven in the Fossil Watches art department. Um we were in a strip mall uh, in a garage that they had spray foamed the roll-up door shut so we could be in there. Um, uh, and I worked there for 15 months. Uh, and when I left, the art department was like 60 people. <laughs> Jeez. It was right when Fossil became a thing. Yeah. But the interesting thing, of course, though, is that I got there. There's not that many people. 
there's a lot of shit that needs to get done and it's a very sink or swim environment but it's also you can make these projects whatever you want them to be mm -hmm. so in the beginning i just was learning the ropes really quickly and then just got thrown into anything i wanted and you had that 50s aesthetic and so i was working on all the limited edition licensed products so it's a watch with felix the cat like I'm sure you can go to eBay right now and there's one where it's a ceramic figure of Felix holding his hand out. There's a stopwatch you can put on it and all that. It's like, I did all that stuff. Yeah. And there was a little bit of a formula there that I could follow, but I really started to expand on what that was going, oh, if this is an old Felix watch, we should print all this on uncoated paper rather than, you know, just stuff trying to get there. And then I would say about 10 months into it or so it just you know it was getting to be big i was getting oh this sounds so silly already a little burned out with what was there so i asked to be put on to what they called their special makeup line so it was the thing where same thing you name they have a whole program where somebody calls up like i'm from i don't know woolworth's and I want to watch to give out to my employees. Mm. Somebody's going to design that. Well, no one gives a flying fuck what that stuff looks like. <laughs> it just needs to get done. Yeah. So I could do anything I want. All right. Uh, Woolworths. We're going to do this. Woolworths has been around for 85 years. I'm going to make it a history of 85 years. I'm going to take every logo they've ever done, collage them in uh, as a six color overprint on uh, uncoated raw charcoal paper and with a one color silk screen, whatever. We don't care. They're paying for it. So mm. I could design anything I wanted within the vernacular of design. Yeah. And it's almost like, cause we'll, we'll come back to the exact same thing at Nike. It was like, you took the, sh what was perceived to be the crappiest project and then you realize that the crappiest project had the most possibilities mm -hmm. and no one was looking over your shoulder. Like the limited edition stuff that I was doing, it's Felix the cat or King Kong. Like a lot of people have to look at this. It's got to go through a lot of hands. Everybody's got an opinion. Your budgets are only so much this stuff. No one cares. So I could do anything I wanted. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, after about, uh, at the, it would have been at the 12 month mark. There was a girl that we worked with who had just gotten hired, you know, and we're talking to her about where she came from. She was like, Oh yeah, I interviewed here, here and here. And I also interviewed at Nike. And I was like, Whoa, that's crazy. You interviewed at Nike. She was like, yeah, this headhunter hit me up. I went out there, uh, you know, not leaving Texas mm -hmm. sort of thing. You know, I'm not moving to Beaverton, Oregon. Yeah. Like I grew up in Texas this is where my family is. And I was like, what's that headhunter's name? Yeah, you know, same thing. All the people that worked with me could have asked the same question, but they didn't. Because mm -hmm. I was like, well, what's the worst that can happen? They're just going to say no. They don't like me. So I made a portfolio. I sent it up there. That was right. So I got hired. Anyway, long story short, then got hired, went out, interviewed, got hired. Because that was right when Nike had gone from Nike type to just swoosh only. Mm -hmm. This was right when Nike was becoming the Nike that we know of it today. Yeah. And I, same thing, showed up, knew what I was doing, had some good work. So I got hired and um, it was 
uh, obviously, and for me, you know, internet's really not even a thing in 95. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I wanted to be on the West Coast. I wanted to be closer to where the things that I loved were happening, where art was happening, where uh, punk rock was happening, where skateboarding was happening, where all this stuff was happening. So I took, you know, that was the first train West and I got right on it. Um, it definitely had a little bit of, in hindsight, very naive that don't make sense anymore. Yeah. Like, uh, if I'm a punk rock skateboard, can I work at Nike? Like, is that, <laughs> is that okay? Like, am I betraying something? And yeah. You're like, this, this, you know, stupid limitations you put on yourself. But, um, yeah, you know, but it's a very interesting time. So I get there in 95, you know, and obviously my day-to-day at that time was apparel graphics. I started off, my the very first project I ever did was a t-shirt for Alonzo Morning. And then uh, I was working on a whole bunch of different stuff. But one of the things that came through was just same thing. It was bottom of the barrel. It was a guy over in footwear that needed some help on some t-shirts. That guy's name is Drew Greer, and he is the godfather of every sneaker thing you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't get out there as much, but he had been charged by Mark Parker when Mark was still much further down the totem pole. Figure out how we sell more shoes in New York. And Drew, Drew came back and said, you need to sell, you need to remake the Air Force One. And so I worked on the relaunch of the Air Force One with Drew. So I did, it was Drew's idea. He pulled it off a coach bag, the little duble, the little metal thing they put on mm-hmm. the thing. Drew's idea, but he was just like, I want something like this. So I designed the very first one. I designed a t-shirt that went with it that was on a capsule that went out to Foot Locker. And then he did the rest. But Drew invented that whole thing. That then start took off and became a, a group of products that Drew was in charge of called Limited Edition. Mm. So I would do all the graphics for all the limited edition stuff and all the footwear. Drew brought back the Air Max 95. He brought back the Dunk in 90. It would have come out in 97. We did it in 96. And then my wife actually did all the catalogs. But like what we know is sneaker culture now, mm-hmm. it's all built and templatized by Drew. The Wu-Tang Dunk, by Drew. Puerto Rican Day Air Force One, by Drew. First ever collab shoe, the Alpha Numeric, by Drew. All of it. Jeez. And uh, I got to help out a little bit on that. Drew did most of it. But I, I, I did the league logo for Major League Soccer when that came out. I named the Dallas Burn, that soccer team when it came out. I did a bunch of those logos. I did the color palette for the Olympics. Uh, you know, you just got the same thing. You just got thrown into stuff. Yeah. But similarly to there, with both me and my wife, is there was also a lot of those trashy projects that no one wanted to do where we would go, wait a minute, what's the budget on that project? Oh, no one cares. I'll take that project. Yeah. I can do anything I want. Um, I did a very, very short stint with footwear i got one shoe out and then i'm only one came out and even afterwards i didn't even get to to do it and then i designed nike towns for a couple years so Mm -hmm. nike town london nike town berlin i did 
big pieces of those two, Melbourne, Atlanta, Honolulu, San Francisco. And I would do both the environmental spaces as well as the graphics. And I love that you talk about it as if it's not like the biggest thing to hit the shoes, but it's just like things that happened. It, it's a weird thing where I go back and I can think about times in my life where I'm in the room in places that I, that historically yeah. are a big deal. Like if you go backwards, like same, these are things I can think about. Like I was there at the beginning of that stuff. We just talked about Drew and shoes. If we talk about Nirvana, I remember seeing Nirvana on the bleach tour in Tampa. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Bleach tour in Tampa. And then Nevermind had just come out and I saw him in Dallas, but it's the show. I don't know how much you care about Nirvana. Yeah. Most Other, people know the, about the show where Kurt hits Turner in the head with the guitar, mm -hmm. splits his whole head open. Okay. I, I've got an unpublished photo. I'm right next to it. I'm at the monitor. And I have the set list at home from that show. Yeah. You know, like here's the set list from the stage. Yeah. So um, like in the videos, you can kind of see me in this photo. You can see me, but like, that's me. I'm at that, that Nirvana show. Yeah. And then um, here at the studio, a guy that we worked with at Nike was a guy named Horace Luke, wonderful guy. He was working at HTC. Remember when HTC phones were a mm -hmm. thing? High tech computer. Uh, he, they were working with another studio down here doing all the, we were doing some packaging. They were doing all the industrial design of the phone the day before the iPhone came out. And we're there and they, and Horace has just the chrome bezel that goes around the outside of the very first iPhone. And they are laughing, laughing, laughing. No one ever gets a phone right the first try. It takes at least three iterations. The software is so complicated. No one will buy a bar phone. No one wants that. That's old technology. Blah, ha, ha, ha. Next day, the iPhone comes out and we go into that meeting and they've got them. And it's just every project is canceled. Mm-hmm. But like I was in the room with one of the third biggest phone manufacturer the day the iPhone came out and changed the industry and watched that. That's a crazy thing. Yeah. That's that, that is insane. So how do we get then from <laughs> Nike and like all these huge meetings and all this stuff to somehow getting to San Francisco with hybrid and starting a magazine, which I believe Super 7 started as a magazine, right? Yep, yep, yep. So how do we so, get to that? How do we get to that? So if you're talking about that, we worked at Nike from 95 to 2000. And, um, you know, I always want San Francisco was sort of always the destination. Mm -hmm. Someplace West Coast, but I really always liked San Francisco. And as our time at Nike was sort of winding down and we were, you know, figuring out where to go next, mm -hmm. right? It was sort of four options for us. There were like San Francisco, New York, London, or Tokyo. So London, I can't get a work visa. So I can't go to London. Like, I want to go live someplace. I want to go where shit happens. Yeah. Right? And it's not a dismissive to anybody else here, but we're still talking about days before the internet actually changed culture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you can be anywhere now. Yeah. You, the late 90s, you couldn't be just anywhere. So that came out of the way. Tokyo was pretty difficult to sort of sort out. And then with New York, we were like, 
I could see us going to New York, but I could see me being in New York for a couple of years, maybe, mm -hmm. but that's it. At that time, especially in New York and streetwear was such a big deal. And all these New York brands, like I would go to New York. So uh, even if we go back to my time at Nike, I used to do streetwear in New York in the 90s, late 90s. So I would take a red eye from Portland on Friday night, fly to New York, land mm -hmm. Saturday morning, and I would go in and I would work on streetwear collections all day Saturday and Sunday till about three o'clock. And then I would take car, you know, taxi, whatever, back to the airport and get on the late night flight that left at like six or seven and land at 10 or 11 Sunday night back in Portland and just go back to work on Monday. So I would do collections for Mecca USA. I did some stuff for Fat Farm. I would do all yeah. the street. But when I would go to New York, you meet these guys and they're all like, fuck, yeah, we're cool because we're fucking from New York. Mm -hmm. I was like, you didn't do jack shit. You were just born here. <laughs> yeah. Like, I was born in Texas. Do you know how, you know, and then bounce around the military, but most of the time in Texas. Do you know how hard it is for me? Do you know how much effort I have to put in to get to this spot? Yeah. Versus a guy that just wakes up one day and is like, yeah, I'm going to do streetwear. I'm in New York, whatever. I'm cool. Like, you're not cool because of where you're from. That does not give you the pass. Right. Like, it's cool is what you do. So I was like, I, I'm not going to be able to put up with New York attitudes for very long. <laughs> so we ended up in San Francisco. Uh, yeah. And same thing, like we came down here, I was doing freelance uh, for a couple studios leading up to moving down here and, um, and opened up hybrid because I was like, let's try and let me try and do my own thing, my own studio. And it was part of it too, was a, a a point of view shift where it was like mentally I'm opening a studio. Mm -hmm. I'm not Brian Flynn freelance. I'm building towards a, a, a studio. Because mm -hmm. I also found that in freelance, people could only give me projects that were this big. Where the reality is, even if I work at a larger agency, I can do the whole thing, but they don't feel comfortable giving a big project to just one dude, even though the reality yeah. is that one dude's the only person doing it. So I was like, I need to be a studio to get the bigger projects. And um, I was like, what's the worst that can happen? It does terrible. We lose it all. Neither I go work for somebody else or I have to move back to Texas. Mm -hmm. All right, whatever. Give it a shot. Um, and yeah, uh, Super 7 was a side project, a hobby for 15 years or so. But I mean, the first 12 years of it, it was really just, you know, there were two or three of us total. It wasn't a thing thing the way it is, per se. Um, yeah, it's it's weird because Hybrid's working on a, a book right now. But it's a, in that vernacular, we got similar to where Super 7 is now. Like, Hybrid's in that vernacular of design students where people know who Hybrid is. Mm -hmm. Oh, the work that we've done and yet 99.9% .9 of the people that know me now and what I do now they're like oh did you used to do stuff it was like yeah I used to do I, I, I but it's not that I was trying to do another thing I just I like doing stuff I like staying busy this is fun why wouldn't I want to do this let's do this yeah what when you start super seven magazine what is the 
the content that kind of fills out. I mean, you did it for 15 years, so it definitely evolves over time. The magazine, I think the magazine only makes it till like 2009 or so. Okay. Before the magazine goes away. Um, the magazine goes away when uh, the publishing crash happens. Yeah. Uh, and I can't remember what year that is now, but there's a, a year which you can look back at historically where basically 75% of all the magazines in the United States go out of business. Mm. You know, all the distributors, all the publishers, everything, it just goes away. And that's where you have the resurgence in magazines now is why you have those lovely, like they're $20 each and they're 200 pages and they're beautiful and they come out quarterly, but like that's sustainable. But this five ninety five monthly or bi-monthly newsstand thing, there's no shops. Like I, I think it starts with the demise of tower and works its way out. Yeah. You know, but um, yeah, you know, we focused it in the, in the beginning uh, around vintage Japanese toys, because mm -hmm. you could find a magazine about collecting, actually you could find three between Wizards, Tomarts, and Lees about collecting American action figures, but no one was talking about Japanese stuff. Mm -hmm. So we mostly talked in the beginning about vintage Japanese toys, but after the very first episode, episode issue, <laughs> you know, we started meeting all these people that were doing new and interesting designer toys mm -hmm. or had a designer point of view so if you go back there's all the magazines are available as free pdf downloads in the resources section of the super seven site and you can go to super seven issue two and we've got published artwork from david horvath and sunmin kim for ugly dolls yeah yeah so 2001 we're talking about ugly dolls which become a huge thing uh, there's the IWG guys, uh, that was doing his sort of like there are animals with guns that were hunting people. Um, you had people that are still in the scene, like Steve Ford and go hero you have, uh, and, and it was all these American people, you know, Tim Biscup, Gary Baseman, uh, Martin Ontiveros, Juana Spoons. And a lot of these people were just our buddies. So as we were talking and hanging out with them, but we were also in Japan talking to the same exact generation of kids in Japan, that's his secret base. That's Bounty Hunter. That's uh, Gargamel. That is, uh, you know, at that time it becomes Real Head. It's Rumble Monsters. It's whoever, you know, it's all these. So they're doing the same thing in vinyl. Yeah. And we start being the bridge. Like we can make vinyl with our friends over in Japan and sell it over here. And we can take our, our designs and our friends designs that are American toy designers and start making it in Japan in their process, mm -hmm. uh, whether it was Lemaire or whoever, or Arbito, uh, Kathy and Brandt. Uh, and we would just make stuff that we liked. Like one of the figures that we made in the monster family early on was um, Fire Robo by Jeremy mm -hmm. Whiteacre. Jeremy was a longtime customer of the store, super great dude. We still see him occasionally, super, super nice. Um, but he was a firefighter. He grew up this little firefighter character. And we we're like, let's make it into a toy. And there wasn't a whole lot more thought about it then because it wasn't a thing. Mm -hmm. We just started making stuff that we liked. And that became its own beast among itself as well. Um, 
it was just, you know, the same thing. Like Frank Kozik lived down the street. So yeah. he would come into the store like once a week. And, you know, we'd pepper him with questions about certain things. And he would pepper us with questions about certain things. And, uh, you know, Kid Robot started from out here. It's a very different beast now than it was. But, but that was started by a guy that was importing mini disc players. It was a company called Mini Disco. Mm-hmm. And then they uh, started bringing in Michael Lau and Eric So figures from Hong Kong, but then turned into them starting to make their own toys. And, you know, all of this stuff is strange. Co was here. Like all this stuff is swirling around mostly the West coast, but uh, and then in the Northeast as well. And it was just this group of people. And what you see is that half of those people are all still here. Yeah. You know, and you do something for long enough. We, I noticed this as I got older, all these weird local punk bands that never made it big, quote unquote. But after a certain point, you do it long enough, you become the classics. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's sort of the, to a degree, that's the way there is with some, a lot of this toy stuff now. It's like a lot of these guys are, God, they've been doing it for 15, 20 years. And now people go, person been doing this for 20 years and it's fucking rad it's impressive and it's rad yeah how do we get so there's a super seven I, i'm in san diego there's a super seven not that far from me um that i frequent because it's just the thing um how do we get off the beaten path yeah <laughs> how do we get from what you're describing as the beginnings of super seven to what we know today, to what we, with all the, we're, I, I mean, this, we're talking three and three quarter figures and licenses and all kinds of stuff. How do we get to this? You know, it's, it's a lot of, it's 22 years of one plus one equals two, two yeah. plus two equals four, but not really four. It's maybe it's two and a half. Well, two and a half plus two and a half equals five. Five plus five to, it should equal 10, but really equals six, maybe seven. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. But seven plus seven is 14. Let's take it back to, tw- and it's just been this slow, slow sort of build where I think now when you look at it, you're like, oh my God, it's this machine. Yeah. You know, I get terrified of it sometimes. It is and it isn't all at the same time because yeah. not all things are created equal. You know, we'll have something that sells bonkers, mm-hmm. like, you know, you know, which you wouldn't have guessed, but same thing. We've been making Godzilla toys for 22 years, but like, oh, the new Godzilla minus one ultimate, like doing really great. But we pair that with here's a set of pre-code horror reaction figures. Mm-hmm. Like that pre-code horror set is very small. Yeah. Not that many people buying that, but I'd like to have that. So let's make that. So there's a, there's a, there, there's a, a real thing where it's like, there's a lot of big, but there's even more small. So, it, you know, I, I would think that really the, the, what I talk about is the moment that super seven becomes the super seven that you know of today is when we put out the alien reaction figures. Okay. Cause when I'm making, you know, really pretty good sized runs of Japanese vinyl, Mm-hmm. I'm still speaking to pretty much everyone that wants that. And that box is pretty small. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about making runs of 250 pieces. Like it's a, it's a great run, but it's also like, there's not 300 people out there. There's 200. Right. 
when we got to reaction figures, all of a sudden it was like, oh, there are thousands of people. Mm-hmm. And I think people think it's tens of thousands, but it's not really the case. Um, but it's still like when you start making that transition into thousands of units, it changes the way you make stuff. I mean, quite frankly, like you're also talking about our first injection molded pieces because even the Stormtrooper, the, the Super Shogun Stormtrooper, that's still blow mold. Yeah. But it's a whole different thing. Like, oh, that cost $30,000 just to get the tools made. You're like, oh, hold on. Wait, yeah. we're, we're pl- but you don't jump right into $30,000 worth of tooling. You have yeah. to build up over 12, 13 years to $30,000 worth of tooling. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. And it seems like um, they're just all different beasts. I know that like anytime at a very small scale that I move into wanting to do something different, I have to relearn a whole nother thing. So to go from like blow mold to Japanese vinyl to then like, okay, we're doing three and three quarter. That's a whole nother factory, a whole nother place, a whole nother. And so are you able to pull from other places? I know that you worked with Funko or like the early iteration of Funko in the beginning. Yeah, with, with Funko, it's an interesting thing. So Funko was our booth neighbor for years and years and years, back mm. when Mike Becker owned them, then once Brian Mariotti bought them. So they were our next-door neighbor. They were just a bobblehead company. They were no different than any of the rest of us. They had gotten a little bit bigger, but if you go backwards and you look up the history of Funko, they got their money you know funding money when they were a 15 million dollar a year business Mm -hmm. they are now you know they were what a billion dollars yeah a year ago or whatever um so when we did reaction figures we showed up to san diego like i said before not thinking you think it was going to be tough like we figured we felt pretty good that we were going to go down there we'd sell some we meet some new people that were interested. We come back after the show. And then over the next three months, we'd be able to sell the rest of what we needed to sell. Mm-hmm. And instead we showed up and everything was gone, vaporized on preview night. And we were like, oh, I didn't know it was like that. Yeah. And through the course of the show, we had pretty much everybody that worked at every other toy company come by our booth going, oh, this is so cool. This is so cool. Oh my God. I loved it. And we started out, you know, Wednesday night preview note, like, holy moly, we sold out on preview night. This is crazy. Thursday. Oh my God. People are excited. This is crazy. Friday. Holy shit. Everybody's still into this Saturday. We're screwed. Mm -hmm. It's going to take me 12 to 18 months to finish delivering, pay for it, collect the money to have enough money to start project number two. Mm-hmm. And in that time, all these other people can start making them. Uh, our next door neighbor was Funko. They had started to become the Funko that we, you know, they were starting their path. So if you're talking about licensing, if I walk into a new studio, if I were just going to make this up, I want to go talk to Hasbro about G.I. Joe. Yeah. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. You don't have a whole lot of track record with the industry, and we've never worked with you before. So whatever royalty guarantee that you need to give me to get the license, 100% of that up front. Mm-hmm. And even back then, those deals start at 25 grand. 
Yeah. They might be 50 grand, 75 grand, 100 grand. You never know. So if I decide I want to go talk to these guys and these guys at the same time, Toxi and G.I. Joe, mm-hmm. 25 grand, 25 grand, just to secure mm. the license. Yeah. Not even before I make any. I don't have that kind of revenue. But if you've already got a contract and you want to add something to your contract, sometimes they'll do it for free if they if nobody else is in the space and they see a growing business potential. Or they might be like, all right, give me 1500 bucks to redraw up an extension. So Saturday afternoon, I sat down with Brian and Becker and said, this is way bigger than we thought it was. And we need to do this. Like, can you help us with production and distribution? Yeah. And they were like, of course, we can help you with production and distribution. And I was like, all right. And we got to lock down the licenses. So then Brian, to his credit, over the next day and a half, as every licensor came to visit him, He's like, hey, can you add this category to my contract? Sure, I can. Can you add this category to my contract? Sure, I can. And that helped box out the space. Yeah. Prevent other people from coming in so that we could have the time to build the line. So for about two, two and a half years, we worked with Funko in a production and distribution Mm -hmm. uh, arrangement where we would theoretically design the toys and then they would produce and distribute, and then we'd get a royalty on what we sold. But they became the Funko that they were. Uh, I remember sitting down with them at the beginning, and they had a five-year plan, and they did their five-year plan in 18 months. Oh, my gosh. And, um, you know, it just, it got, it, you know, by the time you're talking about a little after two years in the, into it, it's, the time, if they put, uh, you know, because I don't want to give away any of their business. Yeah, yeah. If they put a designer on some time to execute a figure, the volume that they can sell of that pop figure is 10 times the volume that they can sell of my figure. Mm-hmm. So they literally got to a point where strategically they were like, we're not going to make your stuff mm-hmm. because we don't have the bandwidth. And I need that bandwidth for something that's going to make me more money. So, uh, you know, at at that time we were like, cool, because we're kind of ready to do our own thing anyway. Mm -hmm. And we had already started kind of rubbing shoulders a little bit where uh, we really wanted to do Masters of the Universe. And they were like, we don't think that's going to work. And we're like, well, we want to make it. And that's what the whole point is. And they're like, well, we don't think that's going to work. So we made them anyways. They don't say reaction. That's why if you look at the very first Masters figures, they have Super 7 logo and not a reaction logo. Mm-hmm. Even though the other reaction logo, because I couldn't legally use it because it was licensed in a P&D deal to function. Yeah. But it's neither here nor there. Like, uh that that gave us the time and the ability to build up to be able to do it ourselves. And then so we took it back and then just kept going. And like I said, not everything works. There's plenty that didn't work. There's plenty that did work. Uh, and we're, we've always just kind of gone with, yeah, approaching it from a collector's point of view, which is what do I not have? What is going to be interesting? What do I, what, what would I like? Mm-hmm. And if we do that, generally speaking, 
other people will like it too. It's not yeah. always the case, but that's that's been sort of the uh, the roadmap that we followed. And what's crazy is that like if that's the the beginning, you've just grown and grown and grown and grown like ultimates those things you never stopped with uh, mummy boy in the giant size and then you have all these licenses and the new thundercats thing that is massive and like you, you just keep one up in yourself which is awesome <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there's a ceiling in there though i think we yeah. i think we found it with um with cat's lair yeah I was like, all right slow your roll okay yeah you know, like, but it just is with all of that and how incredible it is at this point, um, what are your hopes or where do you see Super 7 headed? You know, there's there's so much that hasn't been touched because we're yeah. really talking about this in a very narrow scope, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about this. I feel like I'm just staring off camera all the time because I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, you know somebody would be like how many more reaction figures are there to make well it's like thousands there's thousands of them there's so much that hasn't been touched and there's Mm -hmm. so many weird places to go and so many other things that can be done but i think where we've really shown our strength lately is really taking a step back and going obviously the toy component's going to be there but what's the coolest thing we could make for this license Mm -hmm. like what do i really want for this and it's like, oh, those are the moments where you really start to go like, oh, there's so much more here. Like, if you look back, like when we did our uh, collabs with Iron Maiden years ago, mm-hmm. we did a Blacklight Flocked Killers poster. Yeah. You know, and it's just like, oh, ugh, I'm eight again, like, or 13, <laughs> you know. But it like, it makes total sense. Like, yeah, some of this stuff is, you know, like if I were talking about Sokies. I love vintage Sokies as a monster collector. Like they are the pinnacle or they were the pinnacle for monster collectors. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, these are rad, but it's never going to be more than 500, 750 people that need these. Mm-hmm. That's all it, all that. It's, it's not like we can magically take that to target and sell thousands of them. Yeah. So, so much of what we do, there's a lot of what we do, which is like, look, they're really weird niches in the collecting world meant for a very specific group of people. Um, uh, The wrong analogy, but maybe makes sense is like, you know, where I think if you're talking about large toy companies, they're all trying to hit home runs. Mm -hmm. What we're doing is we're making shitloads of singles. It's a lot more work, but it still works. Yeah. And the, as somebody as a collector, this is more interesting than only make the creature because he's going to outsell everybody else. Yeah. And it's like, all right, yeah, let's let's make all of this stuff. I mean, the Halloween buckets. Yeah. Like, why don't we make some figural Halloween buckets? Why does it just have to be a hat? <laughs> you know, yeah. how many of those are you going to sell? It's not going to be huge, but it's still fun. Yeah. And 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 you never know. Sometimes you do stuff that you don't think is going to sell very well and it goes crazy. So I think yes, there's a lot that comes out, but I think a lot of it is directed to very specific customers. Like mm-hmm. I'm not trying to sell this 
to the guy that wants to buy turtles from me. Right, right, right. No, because it, it it doesn't make any sense to him and it doesn't apply to him. He doesn't understand why we did it. You know, like it just doesn't make any sense. But if you're a monsters guy, you're like, oh, 1960s Sokies. Yes, please. How many can I have? Yeah. So I think that's really the 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 I don't know where when people are like it's just everything it's like it is everything but it's all like it's we've got a whole kaleidoscope that we're shoot you know making with but there's basically one person for yellow one person for purple one person for red one person for green they're all very different things and we're trying to i'm just trying to make as much stuff as i can until somebody wakes up one day and goes that toy dork doesn't know what he's doing like why are we letting him do this i'm trying to get through it yeah and i mean at this point it's a really successful brand and it's a brand that is well known and so it's like just i i don't know it's so hard because you are right with like how many figures are like all the things that could be made like there's so much out there that could be made and with an endless possibility is that overwhelming of like well this is everywhere we could go where are we gonna go i don't know if it's overwhelming um I, th- I think we have what you're maybe talking about a lot of times is that there's more opportunity than time. Mm-hmm. Like, we- let, let me back up a second. Maybe the right the right thing here that I need to notate is that I am very, very aware that I am in an unusual and very lucky position. Mm-hmm. As every one of us that's listening, that if you made it this far in this podcast, like kudos to you um i don't even know if i want to listen to myself talk this much but it's like when you sit around with your friends and you get onto a different podcast and you go oh wouldn't it be cool if Mm -hmm. you start making that stuff out we have built ourselves in a place where we get to execute those conversations and every time we're successful with one that gives us the opportunity not to do two but to do one and a quarter And then I do one and a quarter that gets me to one and a half and one and a half gets me to two. And then two gets me to two and a half, just like we were talking about before. Like, so more and more we're getting bigger and bigger opportunities to do things that I, you could have never imagined. Mm -hmm. So it is not lost on me. And that's the hardest part is that I want to do all of them. But the hard part now is physically, financially, every bit of it you cannot do all the opportunities so which ones are you going to pick and that's been the trickiest here lately which is like i want to do all this shit yeah can't do all this shit you've got to pick you only get to do a couple of them and that that is both a luxury and frustration yeah because i know what to do i know what i would do (laughs) jeez that's it's crazy because I think you uh, you did center on that. Like there's so much that's possible, not a lot of time, not a lot of money. And I've heard you say before uh, the reality of you guys could produce so much a month, but we as the consumer only have so much that we can offer back. That 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 is the that is the million dollar question yeah. right there, which is. You know, you rub up against that very 
very quickly, which is like, how much can I reasonably expect, not just expect, but like what's also reasonable to ask for mm -hmm. a collector to spend to keep up with the line. And I try to be very, very cognizant of it because what you will see with so many other lines, like something gets popular and they'll go from making two, they'll go to four, then they'll make eight, then they'll make 16, you know, like, and people can only keep up with 16 and 32 for so long before they're like, I can't afford this. I can't do it. It's too much. I'm out. Mm -hmm. I don't want that to happen. I try to be very cognizant about it, but that's also where you get into further diversification, not to sound like you know, diversification. <laughs> uh, it's just, but like, but if I say like, oh man, I'm so amped on monsters right now and I'm going to make a reaction figure and I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do Sokies. Well, the guy buying uh, like what would be an ultimate who's probably, let's back this up. The guy that's buying the NECA versions of Universal Monsters right now Mm -hmm. It's probably not interested in this because that guy is looking for lots of articulation, high realism, value for your dollar kind of thing, where this person is straight up nostalgia and stylization. They're a divergent customer within that same group. So rather than trying to just turn this into 20 SKUs, it's like, make this, and then I'll make some of this, and I'll make some of this. And as a whole, we can build up. But yeah. Don't try to make everything. I think that's the hardest part with, you see it with company after company, they get something that hits and something that starts working and they just keep doubling down on it. Like it's never going to fail and the, there's no end to the bottom of the well. And I'm always terrified that we're going to find the, I don't want to find the bottom of the well. Yeah. I want to leave in the well. I want, I want to work around. I want to build more wells. Yeah. Rather than draining this one, can we build more wells? Yeah. <laughs> I'm in a very random, I feel like I'm just making all sorts of random non sequiturs at this point. No, it helps. It helps. Uh, Brian, it has been incredible having you on uh, Toys on I feel Tap. Like I only talked. No, that's okay. That's, that is the perfect podcast thing. Uh, the last part of this whole podcast episode um, okay. is you just plugging away. We all know Super 7. Where do you want people to head to? What's something <laughs> new? Um, but yeah, the last part is just you plug in the stuff that could be going on right now. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really bad about the self-promoting of it all. <laughs> I mean, everybody, you can, Instagram is where I'm always at. I don't know about everybody else, but like the Super 7 Instagram, you can see all the latest stuff that's coming. Web store is super7.com. Uh, if you want to read the old magazines that we referenced like six times in this interview, at the bottom of the footer, there's a resources that'll get you to printed material, I think, that has all the magazines and all that. Um, my Instagram is just my name, Brian Flynn, with an I in the in Brian, Y and Flynn. That sounded weird. Brian Flynn, B-R-I-A-N-F-L-Y-N-N. And you can see me. Like once a month, I post one thing because I'm too busy here and I can't show you any of the stuff that we're working on, <laughs> but I'll get on there and post some weird random thing. You know, the one that's got the most likes here lately, I posted uh, one of the Irish Star Wars three packs. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did see that. And, uh, you know, and I'll post some old stuff. And I mean, but more than anything, it's just, like I said, with all this, you never know what it's going to be or what's going to work out or anything you just if you make the stuff 
that you love, eventually the business shows up. I, I say that not in a weird way, but just like nobody working, well, I can't say nobody now, but nobody working here went to school or right. worked at another toy company. We just started making toys because we wanted them. Yeah. We thought it would be cool. And you just started making toys and it was kind of a weird thing. And then one day you wake up and you're the guy that makes toys. Yeah. You're like, well, when, when did that transition happen? Just kind of happened one day. And it, it's a, it's a really interesting thing. You just kind of, you can't force your future in a lot of ways to exist, but you can give yourself the opportunity to be the person. So when somebody, you know, later on is like, oh shit, we need to get a toy made. Then who would come? Yeah. Brian, thank you again.